This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon. I'm Kelly Hollingworth. Would you like to be able to repair the roads near your farm? Well, there's calls for this to be considered in New South Wales, especially after all of the damage caused by flooding. Let me know what you think. 1300 043 is the other uh, phone number, or you can text in on 0467842722. The Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder is selling some of its Goulburn entitlement, and you'll also hear from the dairy genetics sector, which is booming at the moment. But first up, it's time for today's edition of Rural News and it's a good afternoon to Emma Field. G'day Kelly, making rural news. New Zealand milk processor Fonterra will ban its Kiwi milk suppliers from on-farm euthanasia of bobby calves from the middle of the year. Bobby calves are young animals, less than a month old, but in dairy operations only a certain percentage are needed to replace the existing herd. So for the young calves not needed, many are sent to slaughter. And Dairy Australia estimates about 300,000 calves met this fate in the 2021 financial year. Fonterra recently updated its terms of supply for New Zealand farmers, which means from the middle of the year all bobby calves should be grown out and raised for beef, slaughtered for calf feel or the pet food market. However, a spokesperson for the Australian arm of Fonterra said in a statement they have, quote, no plans to mandate similar requirements in Australia at this time. Wild horse numbers in New South Wales' Kosciuszko National Park have jumped by more than 30% in the past two years, according to a new survey. A new aerial survey by the National Parks and Wildlife Service estimates more than 18,000 horses remain in the park. Invasive Species Council spokesperson Jack Goff says the New South Wales government's plan to address this problem is not working. It's concerning to find out that feral horse populations have increased by over 30% in just two years. We're very concerned that without significant action to reduce feral horses urgently, that the streams and wetlands and vegetation that wildlife like the corroboree frog or platypus rely on will be damaged by these feral horses. So context-wise, the last survey that was conducted was back in 2020. Those figures were released in 2021, finding 14,000 were there. So what do you make of, of, of that jump? Look, the plan is a decent attempt to overturn years of inaction and delay. And we're very pleased that the government committed to reduce horse numbers down to 3,000 by 2027. However, it's clear from these numbers that we are off track in reaching that commitment. To Queensland now, where tonnes of pineapples are being left to rot in paddocks because farmers can't pick them fast enough before they ripen. A mass natural flowering event caused every growing region to produce ripe pineapples all at once, rather than staggering the fruiting. Central Queensland grower Ben Clifton says for him personally, the unseasonable weather meant he had 887,000 pineapples to pick in a five-week period, which was simply beyond the capacity 
of his harvest crew. But he hopes shoppers will take advantage of the oversupply and buy and eat a bit more of the fruit. Well, this season's like no other we've ever experienced, and we seem to be saying that just about every year now. We had a really, really cool, wet July period here in Yapoon. We we're well known for our beautiful winters, but we had a week where five days didn't get over 12 degrees and it drizzled rain. And uh, pineapple, being a tropical fruit, really, really didn't appreciate those weather conditions. So they went into a stress mode and and a high percentage of them have flowered naturally. So what that means is all those pineapples that were cold with wet feet have uh, shot up a fruit, and that's now ready for harvest. Now, that didn't only happen in Yapoon. It happened to the north of us. It happened to the south of us. You know, the guys on the Sunshine Coast, they'll be ramping up in the next week or two to, to reach their harvest peak. I guess last week was probably our harvest peak. You know, our agents at the central markets, our guys at chain stores and things, they're doing a really good job, create awareness with consumers. They're, they're selling pineapples well, they're marketing them well. The fruit is fantastic quality at the moment. So I think the buy two pineapple campaign is going really well because people are getting great quality fruit, coming back, getting another couple of pineapples. And finally, earlier this month, more than 1,300 women helped set a world record for the most photos of women beekeeping uploaded on social media in a 24-hour period as part of efforts to promote diversity in the industry. However, the reality is beekeeping is still very much a male-dominated profession. New South Wales APRIS Association has teamed up with the Agri-Industry Training Board to promote the industry to women. 21-year-old Froeni Bohm participated at a recent APRIS Showcase Day in New South Wales and she's keen on a future in the industry. I'm really interested in bees and obviously bees and bee health is interconnected with just about any other horticulture and agriculture sector and so I'm looking to find ways that I can engage with my industry in a really um, innovative and sustainable way. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks Emma. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It's a billion-dollar problem, according to farmers and regional councils, but there's not enough money or people to fix it. After the massive floods around New South Wales, it's estimated there are 10,000 kilometres of regional roads that need repairing, and farmers say they can't get themselves or their produce in or out. With councils unable to manage, David Clawton looks at the call to allow farmers to fix the roads themselves. It's self-help on a very big scale. It takes big machines to make a road, but many landholders have the equipment and are used to maintaining the roads on their own properties. Now they want to fix the council's roads, but they can't get insurance and liability cover. The Vice President of the New South Wales Farmers Association, Rebecca Reardon, says it's a billion-dollar problem and the liability issue needs to be solved to find the people and equipment to do the massive job ahead. They've just thrown a billion dollars at Western Sydney and um, you know, earlier in the month they said half a million dollars to fix a few potholes around the state. Well, only $280 million of that is going to rural and regional councils and you know, that's barely going to fill in a few potholes compared to what actually needs to be done across the state. We don't believe the government is contributing enough funds. In fact, what they're contributing is a joke compared to the actual size of the task. But we've got to find the resources. And a lot of our members and farmers are saying, look, I need my local road graded, repaired, just so I can operate. Um, and they're offering the help, but they're getting caught up in red tape and saying, well, the government says, oh, no, you've got to go to local council, and local council doesn't want to touch it. There's a whole liability issue. And so the red tape is just um, a disaster 
successful being able to get on and actually get the job done. When all our farmers want is a decent road they can get in and out of town on and get their produce in and out of. Convincing the state government to spend almost 10 times more on regional roads will be tough, given there's not many votes in rural areas. But Rebecca Reardon says agriculture in New South Wales is worth $23 billion, and there's a lot of jobs and food tied up in the sector. Braidwood farmer Peter Jansen is one of those landholders who's offered to help his council repair the roads around his farm. His property was badly burnt in the Black Summer fires, so he was trying to get things back up and running when his access was cut off by recent floods. He had approval from council to repair sections of the council-managed access road himself, but he couldn't get an answer about who would cover insurance and liability. We've got quite a bit of equipment here. I've got a backhoe and a, and a 15-tonne excavator and we've got tractors and all sorts of things. Um, and my neighbours have recently got a, a new $100,000 tractor with a, a greater blade on it. And our, our internal farm roads are probably twice as good as the current access roads that are owned by council. But the problem is, again, they keep putting impediments in the way. Uh, you know, council have said to us, well, you can fix the roads, but you're not to touch this part and this part and that part. And essentially the parts that they exclude are the parts that really need doing first and foremost. And that's probably one of our greatest issues at the moment is getting vehicles across that creek crossing. So they weren't going to pay you to do any of that work, were they? No, no. And we didn't hadn't discussed money. They were not going to pay us. But you um, wanted to have some cover for liability if your equipment got damaged or someone got hurt, well, is that right? Well, we wanted to know our position more than anything else. Um, and they flatly refused in their letters to us saying that they would not comment. So what was the outcome? Did the road get repaired? No, it's still diabolical. Have you got any crops or livestock there that needs to uh, No, not, not at the moment. Uh, we're still recovering from the bushfire, essentially. We've had to basically give away um, what our aspirations were for the farm prior to the fire. Um, we were doing all sorts of um, you know, cropping and things. We were trying to do um, uh, you know, lots of trial agriculture, uh, hazelnuts and, and, um, and other things. Um, but anyway, the, the situation is now that we've just sort of been in recovery mode for the last three years and, uh, you know, we've just experienced this horrendous situation with the, the local roads just not being safe um, or satisfactory to use on a daily basis. Mm. The Local Government Association of New South Wales puts the total repair bill for regional roads at $2.5 billion based on figures from the NRMA. President Daria Turley lives in Broken Hill and she thinks the self-help model is needed because there just aren't enough council staff or contractors to get the massive job done. She wants the New South Wales Roads Minister to approve a trial and she thinks farmers would do a good job. A lot of farmers do have their own certifications to do that. I know quite a few farmers who do and that self-repair of roads does seem like the common sense approach but you know, that we are hamstrung by those liability and standards that councils have to uh, maintain. And the liability issue, um, I know there's one council, and uh, I think it's Canample Council, had put a proposal to the government around that. They had farmers on board. They thought it was viable supervision. And the government had said the liability risk is too great. And yet sometimes we put staff onto equipment that haven't been there for years you know so I, I wonder you know if the government could try that but would the farmer 
be liable or would the council be liable? And if the government approved it, would they be liable? And it will be interesting to see. And Sam Faraway is looking for solutions. He's a minister. His, his that solution, is though, when we spoke to him was landholders should just get certified by the council and then you can be paid to do the work and covered by their liability. But how practical is that? Well, I don't know what certification he's talking about. Well, um, well any and, kind and of earth-moving company would have to get certified through, you know, you'd have to you'd tender and you'd have to get approved, yeah, but you'd need to meet certain conditions. And for most of it, the operator, the plant operator, has to have a qualification and you can't just give that. And they have to go through the process of um, approval. And if it was that simple, um, when Canamble Council asked to do that, the government would have said, here's the way forward. But unfortunately, they stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. With 10,000 kilometres of roads to be repaired and farmers all over the state struggling to get equipment, grains, livestock and people on and off farms, this issue isn't going away anytime soon. David Clawton with that report. Well, Ryan Milgate is the chairman of the Victorian Farmers Federation's Transport and Infrastructure Committee. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Kelly. How are you? Well, thank you. Now, roads are an issue in Victoria too. Would you like to see farmers here allowed to repair roads in their area? Well, I, I guess um, everyone would say we would like, you know, council and government to have the ability and the uh, resources to be able to fix our roads, but I think we all know the fact is they, they don't. Um, so I guess, you know, that's sort of plan B, but absolutely, um, I think, you know, we, we need to be able to access land. We need to be able to get um, produce and machinery and people in and out. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There has been a text already come in from Robin, who's north of Coleraine. She says, in the southern Grampian Shire, we've been repairing our own gravel roads for years, filling in potholes and grading them, draining water away from the road and clearing out drains. Otherwise, it doesn't get done and the road would be washed away. Road close signs are still up three months after culverts are washed out. They don't have enough graded drivers and don't allocate enough for maintenance. Would many other people say similar things? I think you'd find everyone in country Victoria would have a story or an anecdote somewhere around a road that needs fixing and hasn't been fixed. Um, I mean, I guess I'm aware and, you know, that people have actually had to fix roads themselves, um, A, to actually gain access to to their land for harvesting and spraying and the like. And, um, you know, I guess we're talking about the liability issue. Well, we also got to remember that a lot of us are big businesses and employers, so we've got to you know, a duty of care to our employees and those that we work with and those in our local area. Um, So for us to turn a blind eye to something on a road that could be dangerous, you know, a lot of farmers are, you know, practical, pragmatic people and I think they just kind of go and sort the problem out and move on rather than try and go through the whole rigmarole and the red tape and and everything that would normally be involved. Has... This issue of farmers grading and maintaining their own council roads been raised by the VFF or other Victorian organisations before that you know? Um, it's certainly something that's been mentioned around um, commonly for quite a while. Um, I can't say that that's something that we've implicitly taken the government and spoken on that, that issue alone, but certainly... Um, there's quite a bit of it has been happening for a long time and there's certainly been a lot has happened in the, you know, just in this past harvest for people to actually safely access land that they had to get to. 
how many farmers are in regional Victoria that have their own earth-moving equipment that could be contributing and helping get some of this work done? Yeah, look, I think there'd be quite a few farmers that have got equipment that would be suitable, but I know um, from anecdotes and stuff I've heard around locally, some of it's not, you know, owning a big grade or a water truck or a roller. Um, Some of it's as simple as running an offset disc up a quite a big rut and, and filling it in that way. So, you know, some of the issues we're facing, we don't actually need, you know, very expensive big earth-moving machinery skilled operators. It could be as simple as run a speed tour or an offset disc up and down the road, fill the ruts in, and that actually, you know, it's not perfect, but it certainly makes the road accessible and a lot safer than if it was left in the state it was in. In your mind, what, what is the best solution to keeping uh, regional roads, particularly those unsealed roads that we're talking about at the moment, in good working order, um, especially yeah. if the government doesn't come to the party and provide enough money to fix them? Yeah, I guess, I guess that's um, the key point is here that we need to mention. We're talking about these unsealed sort of, you know, minor roads. Um, and I guess really what we'd like to see is a pragmatic approach to the problem we've got. We all understand that you know, the, the resources of, um, you know, people, money and machinery are limited. So if there's a way that locals and council can work together and actually get these roads, you know, they won't be A1-class highways, but they'll be safe and passable. Um, if we can get them up to that standard with, a you know, a good common-sense approach and, you know, bearing in mind most people are happy to wear the cost of getting that road up to date. So, you know, it's really a win-win if you take a, you know, a common-sense approach to a massive problem. Do farmers want to have formal arrangements in place for this road maintenance or are they better off doing it when it's convenient for them and when they see that there's a need? Look, look I, guess, I, I guess formal arrangements would have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed and, and you know, everyone knows where they stand with liability. Um, but I think what we've seen so far and what's happening is people are just, you know, they're finding an issue, coming up with a solution, they're fixing it and moving on and um, and just keep moving on. But, yeah, ultimately, you know, formal arrangements where there's no grey areas around liability and the like would be ideal. But, you know, at the end of the day, we just want to be able to access our land to do what we need to do. There's a text that's come through from Jono on the borderline. He says maybe Australian farmers should boycott taking produce to the market for three months until work starts on the roads. Let's see the chaos in the cities then. Cities get billions in road infrastructure to save a few minutes of travel time. Um, it sounds like an extreme measure. Are we headed down that path quite just yet, Ryan? Oh, look, that's a fairly extreme measure, but it certainly illustrates the frustration that's out there, I think. So... Um yeah, look, boycotts and holding produce back is, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that would or wouldn't work. But, you know, certainly we're our, our voice in the in the country is diminished on um, the number of votes we've got. So we do really battle to get the recognition we deserve and, and the services that we need to do our job. Ryan, thanks for your time this morning, or this afternoon, I should say. It's uh, certainly an interesting concept that... Uh you know, is another approach that could be being looked at for uh, maintaining those rural roads. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That, That was Ryan Milgate, who's the chairman of the Victorian Farmers Federation's Transport and Infrastructure Committee.
Well, let's talk water now. More environmental water from the Goulburn catchment is up for sale, and this time it's from the Commonwealth Environmental Holder. Eight gigalitres of annual water allocation is being sold via competitive tender, with all the profits going back into delivering water. Water allocations have been sold on five occasions since 2014, and in total it's made nearly $5 million. Annie Brown spoke to Dr Simon Bark, the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. You know, like any other water holder, um, you know, I have a range of options in terms of um, what I do to manage the, the portfolio of water. So use it within a particular year, carry it over to future years, but also uh, trade as an option. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I've been thinking about the conditions of, of, um, of, of the basin, um, the water available and what we, uh, you know, may need for next year, forecast conditions, uh, and have decided that um, we should, uh, that I should trade um, uh, up to eight gigalitres. Why come to the decision to trade rather than carry over for the next year? Well, I think all those decisions uh, are in play. And at the moment, um, you know, our, like my assessment is we've got uh, plenty of water that we can carry over. Um, but, uh, you know, the, what we're talking about is our annual allocations. So um, these are uh, allocations we receive each year and is different to our permanent uh, water entitlements. So, um, you know, being able to trade those. Uh, and and uh, I think a key thing is also that um, we use the proceeds or the funds that uh, come from the trade uh, and we'll invest that in other activities uh, or the acquisition of more um, uh, water to, uh, to improve environmental outcomes. Right. So yeah. So it can fund other projects or other other parts of the work that the environmental water holder does. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. So uh, any any funding that's that I get from the um, from the trade, we'll use. Um, we can either buy uh, more water allocations in in parts of the uh, basin where we need perhaps more water, um, but we can also fund um, projects. So things like fish passage, uh, fishways. Um, or, you know, if there's uh, within a wetland, um, block banks or little things like that that, um, you know, working with our partners uh, that need removing to improve uh, water delivery, then um, they're the sorts of things that we'd fund. It's not a um, huge amount of water that's up, but, but, but I'll also, through the rest of this year, um, we'll be considering uh, whether we do further trades um, in, in, uh, in the Golden, but also in other parts of um, the basin. That's still, um, you know, those, those things will all be considered as um, we see conditions, um, you know, keeping monitoring of conditions as we go forward. And I guess what are you seeing in the environment at the moment? This is the third pretty wet year that we've seen in a row. Are you seeing a lot of, a lot of changes or a lot of benefits? Yeah, look, the floodplains, um, as, as I, I think many people would realise, are getting a good drink um, and many parts of the floodplain that, um, you know, have, have um, received water that, you know, otherwise would not have um, through these um, floods. So vegetation is, um, you know, is really uh, booming in, in the floodplains. Um, you know, groundwater's been recharged. Um, you know, in, in, in um, the last couple of years, we've seen some of the most widespread water bird breeding across the Murray Darling Basin in 20 years. So um, there's there's really good outcomes that are you know we're, we're seeing birds breed in their tens of thousands, and and it's really important in these these uh, wet times that the birds uh, or the environment um, really recovers because, as we know, uh, dry times will follow, uh, and if we can build the resilience of these systems now. Uh, for the future, that's uh, that's a really important thing to do. And looking forward forward into the future for the the twenty twenty two twenty three season that we're currently in, I guess what's the what's the plan going forward for environmental water? 
Look, we'll um, we'll continue to monitor conditions, uh, and uh, at the present time, we're um, using environmental water as the flood recedes to um, create uh, sort of fresh water areas where um, because there there is hypoxic black water in parts of the uh, the basin. So what we're doing is um, is uh, diverting water, fresh water, or or, or water with better oxygen levels um, to support fish um, during that time. Um, we're also uh, providing uh, water in, in parts of the system to support bird, uh, bird breeding, so to ensure those uh, bird breeding or the bird breeding is completed successfully. Um, but that's also about making sure there's resources, um, so fish and other things in the system that the birds feed on as well. So it's sort of a, you know, there, there is a broad ecosystem approach that we take. That was Dr Simon Black, the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, speaking to Annie Brown. I'm Kelly Hollingworth. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour. Thanks for your company. Uh, just a reminder, 1300 043 is our phone line and you can text 0467 822 We are talking about roads and whether farmers should be allowed to grade some of the council roads around their own properties. Big thank you to Jeff who's sent in a message. He says, farmers usually see a problem and see a way around it. Governments see a problem and can't see a way around it. Interesting thought there. But right now it is time for local news headlines and today I'm joined by Lexi Junowick. Good afternoon, Kelly. Rochester students in northern Victoria are back in the classroom for the first time since the devastating October floods. High school, primary school and kindergarten students are on the high school side in portable classrooms while they wait for school buildings to be repaired. The high school principal says she hopes students will be back in the regular school buildings by the middle of the year. A community-run food relief organisation in northern Victoria is expecting never-before-seen demand in 2023. At Moira Food Share, 75 volunteers distributed $4.5 million worth of food along the border over the past financial year, and demand is growing. The organisation's coordinator says lots of people in need are still too uncomfortable to ask for help, and Moira Food Share is working to break down the stigma around accessing food relief. Police have identified the woman killed in a crash at Halls Gap over the weekend as a 29-year-old Wendaree resident. It's believed the woman was driving along Mount Zero Road when her vehicle struck a tree on Saturday. A seven-year-old boy who was a passenger in the car was taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Moonshire councillors are expected to object at today's council meeting to an application to build the Mount Fines wind farm in southwest Victoria. The council's current position is to oppose all new wind farm proposals in the Shire until the state government carries out strategic planning on renewable energy and potential infrastructure locations. The Minister for Planning will be responsible for approving or rejecting the plan to build the 81 turbine Mount Fines wind farm north of Mortlake. And after nearly three months, final flood warnings are set to be lifted from Mildura by the end of this week. The water levels in the Murray have dropped in the past few days and the Nichols Point Watch and Act warning has been downgraded to advice. The SES says people still need to be careful of the hazards around Nichols Point and Bruce's Bend. For more news anytime, you can visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Lexi Junowick. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. In a couple of minutes, we'll be talking about 
finding farm labour. I'm wondering whether you've recently tried to track down farm workers uh, because in a minute we'll hear from a dairy farmer who was pleasantly surprised by the return of working holiday visa holders. Again, just a reminder, you can call 1300 043 or you can text 0467842722. But it is time to check in with the Weather Bureau where I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Christy Johnson. Hi Christy. Good afternoon. It's a nice blue sky up in the northwest of the state today. I, I, am I am I blessed, or is everyone in the same position today? Look, uh, there's been a nice clear sky through the north of the state today. It's been a bit more cloud in the south. It's gradually breaking up, but it's still pretty cloudy through Gippsland. Um, but we are expecting that we will see some sunny breaks uh, this afternoon, so that's good news. Um, otherwise, it's looking like a reasonably settled day for for most of the state. Uh, there is the risk of a shower out in the east, maybe even a thunderstorm over parts of the northeast, um, but there shouldn't be too much and it should be fairly isolated, so uh, not too much to worry about today. Top temperatures today up to 33 for Mildura, 32 at Swan Hill, 31 at Shepparton, Echuca and Wangaratta. Uh, we've got 29 at Horsham, Bendigo, Seymour and Albury-Wodonga. Um, we've got 25 at Hamilton and Ballarat, 24 at Sale, 23 at Bansdale and 22 at Warrnambool. So uh, just a, a fairly mild day. Um, tomorrow it'll be a little bit cooler. We have a weak cool front, cold front that's going to move through Bass Strait. Should just push a few showers, uh, particularly into the south of the state um, and just drop the temperature a little bit. So looking at uh, high 20s through the north and uh I guess low low to mid twenties in the south, maybe around about the twenty degree mark in the southwest, where the front will get there a little bit earlier. Um, but yeah, not too much in that. Maybe the chance of a thunderstorm out over the very far east eastern ranges in East Gippsland, near the border there. Uh, Thursday, though, uh, we do go back to the west northwest for briefly. Uh, the temperatures. Uh, don't really recover very much because we have another stronger cold front that looks like it moves into the west um, in the afternoon on Thursday and then reaching central districts in the evening and then moving through the east on Friday morning. And that's a much stronger cold front. So it will bring not only a band of showers as it crosses on Thursday, uh, but also potentially some very cold air on Friday. So on Friday, the temperatures are just around the, the mid mid to high teens right across the state, possibly as low as 13 at Ballarat. Uh, we may see some snow up on the ranges on uh, on Friday, above about 1,300 metres, possibly some thunderstorms, particularly about the southeast coast, maybe a bit of small hail as well. So a really cold outbreak um, sort of Thursday night, Friday, as we have that cold front moving through with showers and uh, possibly a bit of thunder near the coast. Um, after that, the weekend does look a bit better, though. That uh, system moves away quite quickly and we get to uh, a fairly settled day on Saturday. A few showers about, but clearing later. Temperatures getting back into the low 20s. And then for Sunday, we're back to pretty much dry conditions. Maybe just the odd light shower or drizzle patch during the morning in the south, but not much in it. Uh, and temperatures getting back up into the mid to high 20s. So uh, an improving trend there. And Monday looking not too bad either, mostly fine. Uh, temperatures in the mid to high 20s, maybe even the low 30s in parts of the north. 
um, before we may start to see a, a bit more shower activity coming back into the east on Tuesday. But really the most interesting thing this week is that cold outbreak uh, late Thursday and through Friday um, with a bit of a wintry taste there, uh, but a much more settled weekend to follow after that. So if people had jobs to do outside, would you be recommending to try and bowl them over in the next day or two? Yeah, look, there shouldn't be too much in terms of rainfall um, yeah, today, tomorrow, even for uh, much of Thursday, certainly in the morning. Um, but yeah, from Thursday afternoon through Friday, it does look like it could be quite wet and cold. Uh, as I say, maybe some showers still hanging around Saturday morning, but that'll be easing later and then looking mostly dry Sunday and Monday. So probably the best days for outdoor activities the next day or two or then, yeah, Sunday, Monday after that. And it's the last day of January and I've just had a look at the Victorian warning summary and we're down to sort of three fairly mild kind of messages on there, which is a big contrast to what it was like a month or two ago. Yeah, that's right. The um, the flood warning uh, for the mid emitter was finalised yesterday, so no no longer expecting flooding there. So really we've just got um, a, uh, a strong wind warning for the central coast um, for tomorrow. Uh, we'll probably see some more wind warnings developing with that next front Thursday, Friday. We may even see a gale warning for the uh, southwest coastal waters. Um, but yeah, we're not expecting. It'll be a gusty change. There'll be getting windy with it, but probably over land, not expecting anything that will require a warning. Um, but, yeah, just a, a bit of a breezy day uh, with that next front. Well, Christy, thank you for your insights, uh, as always. No problem. That's Christy Johnson from the Bureau there, giving us an insight into what we can expect for the rest of today and into the, the week ahead. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's look at some dairy stories now and a lot of dairy farmers named the labour shortage as their biggest challenge for their business. But one dairy farmer has noticed a big jump in interest from working holiday visa holders who must complete 88 days of farm work to extend their stay in Australia. Laurie Clark, a dairy farmer at Katandra West, says he employed a lot of backpackers before COVID, but up until very recently, they've been hard to find. Pre-COVID, we used to have... Um like you'd have permanent employees and if they decided to move on for whatever reason, you'd quite often fill the gap with a backpacker for several months, which gave you the opportunity to be in the um, in the space looking for the right employee, the right fit for the business. And we've had so many good backpackers over the years from that. And they brought with them like a huge range of skills. We had people from solicitors to school teachers to landscapers to engineers to uh, event organisers. And then, Laurie, when COVID came along? Oh, when COVID came along, um, it became a little bit more difficult to uh, attract staff. Well, we could still attract staff, but it was a lot harder. Now, talk me through how just very recently you've gone from struggling to fill positions to being swamped by applications. Yeah, look, we were really surprised because... Um, I had uh, guys wanting to go away on holiday and get a bit of a break, and we thought, well, look, let's just dip our toe in here and see if we can get a backpacker for a month or so to just to, just to cover these guys while they take their breaks. And we put an ad up, whereas you quite often get no response or one or two responses. I got about oh, I got about fifteen responses, 
and some really great people um, turn up and make an application. Um, and the young girl that I chose, she didn't wind up going through with it. So I had my daughter put an ad up looking for backpackers, and she got over 100 responses. And there were so many of these young backpackers were struggling to get their farm work and struggling to get their regional 88 days because they've got to do three months of regional work in order to get their second year visa. I think um, if that is an actual change, you're probably seeing the early days of it because I think a lot a lot of backpackers, and it could just well be a busy time of the year because a lot of backpackers had spent Christmas at home with their family um, and they decided, right, well, let's let's get on a plane and get out to the warm part of the world. So instead of being in the Northern Hemisphere winter, they charge out, out here and uh, have a bit of a party over New Year's Eve in January and then mid-January or so they're starting to look for work. So we're definitely seeing a, a, the beginning of the turnaround of staff availability. I guess I'm wondering, Laurie, what, what you offered in your application. Were you offering a particular, particularly attractive work conditions or a particularly attractive salary, or did you think it was just a, a standard a standard job description? Uh, well, it was a short-term position that we were looking for. We were looking for somebody for about a month or so, something like that. Um, and it fitted quite well with the young bloke that we actually employed. He bought a, a heap of skills with him, and he's really fitted in really well and quite quickly. Um the quality of the recruitment that we put up was, well, look, I think we're all getting a lot better at recruiting as we go along, but I didn't think it was anything that um, was standout different from what we normally do that would have elicited a different response. You spoke earlier about backpackers for you filling the void between permanent workers, and is that always going to be the case that backpackers, because they're most likely going to be short-term workers, that that they're not the the silver bullet for the labour shortage in the dairy industry, but they're, they're just going to fill gaps? That's probably about where their best value is because you obviously, obviously you can't turn them into long-term workers because of their um, uh, visa requirements. But um, you can get some really good responses out of the backpackers and really good, teach them really good skills and capabilities. Um, it's, it's quite rewarding from the perspective of watching the personal growth of these kids too when they come to the farm and they you know some of them have never seen a cow before or never seen a tractor before and they step up to the challenge you see some really fantastic personal development from kids that think look i can't do this or i can't do that and then with a bit of coaching and encouragement they just step up and they just really take off it's really rewarding to watch that and do you feel confident now that next time you go back into the job market to find a worker, that that at that time as well you're going to get plenty of applicants? Uh, well, I don't really have any concerns. I think there'll be applicants there and we don't really need permanence at the moment, so it's really the odd fill-in here and there is what we're after. You know, you might get a busy carving or whatever and you need somebody for a few weeks or in the spring with your haymaking or whatever. But um, I think that there'll be available workers. It's just a matter of getting that to be a broad range of applicants coming through. That was Katandra West Dairy Farmer Laurie Clark speaking with Angus Verley. Sticking with dairy, as the industry's experiencing strong conditions, there are flow-on effects to multiple industries, but one you might not think of straight away is the genetics sector. Sarah Lawrence spoke to three separate genetics providers who say they're all experiencing record sales. 
CMEX General Manager Tyson Shea says the sector is reaping the benefits of a booming dairy industry. So 2022 was a record year for, for CMEX in Australia, mostly driven by uh, the increase in sex semen usage. And I think that the driver of that at farm level was the live export price of black and white heifer calves. So saw the trend that of a lot more sex semen being used, um, a decrease in conventional semen and, and then an increase in beef semen. Um, probably the increase in beef semen was for the demand of the beef on dairy calf. Uh, so overall, uh, a very successful year yeah, for us. And how's the year ahead looking? Really good. So um, supply looks strong. Um, the industry's in a really good spot with milk price, uh, live export price, beef price. So I think, yeah, if we can back it up again this year, we'll have a, another successful year. It's a similar story for Darren Fletcher from Total Livestock Genetics, who's seeing a booming industry. Absolutely fantastic. Record sales over the last 12 months. Sex semen usage is increasing by about 20%. Farmers are buoyant about using sex semen, so it's, uh, it's certainly showing up in the figures. And why do you think the demand is there? How have things changed over the past few years? Uh, obviously, milk prices have played a pretty important factor in it with, with high milk prices. Uh, farmers could use with some lower input prices, but the, it's made them buoyant that the industry's um, stronger and, and going to be there for the future. So that sounds quite promising. I, even with uh, weather conditions, do you think it will hold up? Yeah, certainly. There's a lot more, you know, farms in northern Victoria and the likes of that that are going to barns and, and, and whatnot. So they are adapting to changing climates and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, certainly, certainly see a future. While Jared Brislin from Genetics Australia says farmers have just come off a tremendous end to 2022 and they're looking to the future. I, I think continuing to set up for the next generation, you know, is, is where they're, uh, they're wanting to invest. You know, we have technologies around, uh, you know, the, like genomics and genotyping today and people can sort of see a future in, in that, you know, and, and that's, um, yeah, it's, it's very much, you know, that... Uh, long-term investment i guess that you know where they where they see the advantages in uh in genetic material do you see any bumps ahead in the road or any challenges oh i think uh there's, there's always sort of um you know challenges along the way and i probably tend to think that um you know what what the next next 12 months sort of brings you know we've you know just as i said come off uh off some nice conditions and you know really does depend on what uh you know where the rainfalls uh you know in the next 12 months and the likes and uh yeah, so I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's been some nice harvests in terms of fodder and the likes, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're just going to have to sort of wait and wait and sort of see what sort of plays out. I mean, it can be, uh, it can be one thing this month and a little bit different in six weeks' time, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, changes pretty quick. On that note, when you're having a good year, what are you doing now to mitigate any potential ups and downs? Oh, yeah, I think, you know, mitigation around that, particularly in our, in the part of business that we're in, in terms of genetics, it's just really important for us to continue to identify, you know, the best genetics that we can take forward for uh, for Australian dairy farmers, you know, uh, you know, breeding Australia, better Australian cows is, uh, and herds is what we're all about. And, uh, you know, we're in the process right at the moment of just sort of signing off some, some new acquisitions through our beef and our dairy programs and, you know, which will take us forward in the next, uh, you know, the next 18 months with some strength around breeding values and the like. That was Genetics Australia's Gerard Brislin ending that report. And just in case you've uh, joined us late, uh, one of the stories we had in rural news mentioned that uh, New Zealand's Fonterra milk suppliers have been ordered to stop disposing of bobby calves after the co-op changed its supplier contracts 
Now the Australian arm of Fonterra says there are no plans to mandate similar requirements in Australia at this time as it works with industry to support calf care on farm. But it is certainly big news for the dairy industry and the ABC has made calls to try and get interviews on this topic. You'll be able to hear more about this issue on tomorrow's Rural Reports and Country Hour. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. You are listening to the Victorian Country Hour. I'm Kelly Hollingworth and it's 11 minutes to one. A conservation property near Mildura has recently acquired some new helpers. Four emu chicks arrived at Rackajillum in October and Fiona and Phil Murdoch say the plan will be to release the mob into the 490 hectare property in the coming months. We've got a conservation fence around our property and that's to manage grazing pressure but one of the unintended consequences was it also kept out the native emus and emus are really important to disperse seed uh, for the native plants and they, you know, they eat the seed and then they make a little compost pile of their poo that helps the seed grow. So we thought we'd get some tame emus that could stay inside our conservation fence and basically do work for us for free spreading spreading seed around and revegetating the land. I imagine that it's not a straightforward process trying to find emus for a conservation property. What had to go on before you could have these birds at your farm? Uh, so <laughs> the first thing obviously emus being native wildlife need a permit so we had to obtain a, a wildlife permit but then it was actually much more difficult than we thought to find some emus to purchase and uh, we eventually did so and we brought them home as you know week old chicks when they were tiny and stripy and we've been raising them here and they'll be um, in the paddock for another few months before we let them go out on the property and we'll still need to provide supplementary food and water for them Um, but yeah it's been a bit of a process for sure. So how have you been dispersing seed up until now like before you had the emus how labour intensive has it been? So all the seeding that we've done previously has been sort of through direct seeding we've got a direct seeding machine that that sows the seed in into the soil Uh, in a shallow furrow and we also distribute seed by hand so there's a lot of walking about tossing seed around and we think the emus can do a much better job. Are there other conservation properties that have gone down this path that you've been able to learn from? I'm sure there's other people who who do this um, but I I can't think of any to mind so it is a bit of a grand experiment but but we do know how important wild emus are at dispersing seed so we're, we're pretty confident we're on the right track. What have you learnt so far about having them nearby? They seem to be quite comfortable with us being in their paddock at the moment. Yeah, it's been been quite bizarre really. So the things I've learnt about emus are they like to swim. We had to put a bath into their paddock because they kept swimming in their drinking water. So that was the first thing. Emus have some really strange behaviours. Every morning they run laps of the paddock and they also have this strange 
duck down on the ground and spring up jack-in-the-box behaviour. We think that's just about training their muscles and getting themselves fit and healthy, but it looks hilarious. You've got Jazz, the conservation dog, on the farm as well. How does Jazz cope knowing that you've got these emus that you're raising and, you know, eventually they'll go out onto the property? Do you think they'll get along? Yeah, there was a bit of uh, distrust, I guess, initially. and Jazz was a bit wary. But if he comes in the yard now, she just points them and they come over and hiss at her. And I could probably go and let her in. It might actually get some noise out of the emus. I'll go and get her while you talk to Fee. Why not? How quickly have they grown? We uh, purchased our emus sort of in early October. And as I said, I could I could bring them home nestled in my hands as black and white chicks. But they grew really quickly. Um, they're now sort of standing you know, waist high and they stand up quite tall when they want to. Um, we, we'll keep them in the paddock until uh, sort of late, late autumn when there's enough food for them to go out and they'll be, yeah, they'll be, they'll be still young emus but they'll be closer to adult size. What plants are they likely to be most interested in that are out on the property? I've started training them to eat uh, eremophila seeds, which is called emu bush. So that's one of the, the classics that emus eat and distribute. Other things like uh, quandongs, really important, uh, ruby salt bush, any of the salt bush berries, they'll, they'll really spread around. And uh, just laughing at the emus doing their pop-up dance. And they'll also spread a lot of the wattle seed around. Out of the four emus that you've got, do you know whether they're male or female? No idea, Kelly. Um, we won't really know until they mature and they, you know, start start breeding. I guess. Would ideally you like them to breed? Four is a good number. Um, we'll obviously just have to, to to wait and see what happens. We've got to we've got to manage them sustainably to keep the numbers sustainable. So we'll do that. That was Phil and Fiona Murdoch, who own a conservation property near Mildura and are about to have emus helping with their revegetation work. Later this week, you'll hear from Phil and Fiona again. Uh, it'll be about the positives, negatives and unknowns that have come from the Murray River flooding. Q&A has returned to Monday nights. It's the show that gives you a voice, challenges you and leaves you surprised. You'll hear things you agree with. Can't they see we deserve some justice? Some things you don't. If you back us into a corner, we're going to come out fighting. But you're going to hear the truth and someone has to answer. Join Stan Grant for Q&A. The answers are here. Back on Monday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Before we head to markets, I have got some cattle-related news, and that's that the herd is set to reach its largest size in nearly a decade, according to Meat and Livestock Australia. It's expected to hit 28.8 million head this year as increases in numbers are now beyond rebuild status. Continued rainfall and favourable seasonal conditions last year will ensure that there will be solid supply of both young and slaughter weight cattle over the next two years, regardless of seasonal outcomes. Well, let's have a look at what those markets have done locally. Let's kick off with cattle. Uh, Leanne Dax has been at Wodonga today. Good afternoon, Agents Yarder. Just over 800 cattle and a very plain yarding with very few cattle to suit trade buyers. The limited numbers of well-finished 
Stock force buyers to step up to secure numbers. Only a few veal to the trade, 354 to 422. Trade heifers bounce 15. 322 to 412. Feeder heifers jump 25. 335 to 395. Trade steers, 320 to 424. There were very few to quote. Heavy grown steers and bullocks gained 15. 360 to 389. Heavy cows were up 15 cents, 295 to 321. And bulls ranged in price anywhere from two sixty to two ninety four. Leanne Ducks, MLA. Now let's head to Shepparton with Nicole Varley. Good afternoon. Well, the numbers doubled after last week's record low levels. There were six hundred and five exports and two hundred and five trade cattle penned. There were a few handy lots of growing steers offered and a mix of both beef and dairy cows. Most of the usual buyers attended, however, not all operated. Prices lifted on well-bred and finished growing steers and bullocks. Cows and trade cattle had mixed results. Trade cattle were very mixed in quality with only a couple of lots of fair to good quality vealers. The balance of the yard were more store condition, making it difficult again for processors to find suitable cattle to kill. Best of the vealers to the trade made to 415. Restockers paid to 452 for the lighter weighted calves. Yearling heifers ranged from 310 to 380 cents. The yearling steer portion 360 to 410, averaging around 383. 400 to 500 kilo steers to processors, 386 to 410, while a line of Hereford steers went back to the paddock and made to 375 cents. 500 to 600 kilo steers ranged from 393 to 396. 600 kilo plus bullocks topped at 407. Heavy beef cows, 256 to 310, and the dairy cows, 210 to 289. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. Now we're headed to Ballarat for the sheep market with Graham Palmer. A big lift in lamb numbers, saw 33,500 drawn for at Ballarat. Quality was mixed, but with an excellent run of heavy shorn lambs. They sold the top at $298. The usual buying group attended, operated keenly in a mostly firm market. South Down across trade weight lambs, at times reaching 900 cents a kilo. Mark was a little easier on some of the plainer trade weight types. Medium and heavy trade weight sold from 186 to 226. The heavy lamb sold from 260 to 298. Unshorn lambs mostly sold from 170 to 224. Restockers and feeders from South Australia and Northern Victoria, local areas are active, paid from 128 to 167. Lighter weight sold from 32 to 87. The lamb sale is still in progress. There's approximately 10,000 thrown and sheep to be sold. The light trade weight lamb sold from 150 to 186, averaging 830 to 850. Medium trade weights, 180 to 210, average 820 to 870. Been growing palm with Ballarat from LA. And that's the Country Hour for today. A big thank you for everyone for their contributions. I'll be back again with you at the same time tomorrow. And don't forget that for more rural news between now and then, you can head to the ABC website. That's abc.net.au forward slash rural. You will find an article about the pineapple glut there, which was something that was covered in Emma Field's rural news segment first up today. But have a wonderful afternoon. You better make the most of those blue skies and nice weather conditions because, as you heard, things are going to turn later on Thursday and into Friday even snow possible. My goodness, who would have thought in February? Have a great day. It's approaching one o'clock.